The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. I get to meet the most exciting people. And today with us all the way from Nashville, Tennessee, where she sings in a chorus, by the way, I'll get to that later. <laughs> we have one of the world's authorities on sleep and autism, a tenured professor at Vanderbilt, none other than Professor Beth Mallow. Beth, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Oh, thank you for taking the time to, uh, uh, to be with us because aside from everything else, one of the most underrated things in the world is sleep. And yet, here we are. Here we are in 2021, and people still don't get the importance of sleep. How did you get into sleep? That's a great question. Well, we all sleep, and I've always been fascinated by it. But I was actually training as a neurologist in uh, the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. And I was, I was studying epilepsy, seizures. And I was really fascinated by how when people with seizures went to sleep, their seizures went away in certain parts of their sleep. Like they just completely didn't have seizures. They didn't have abnormal you know, we call them spikes on their brain waves, their EEGs, they all just went away. And I was like, wow, this is pretty magical. And then I also worked with some seizure patients who had sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea, where they would stop breathing in their sleep. And when we gave them a CPAP machine and, and improved their sleep apnea, we noticed that they stopped having seizures. So I those two things just fascinated me. And I said, I really need to know more about this. You know, what, what happens when we sleep and how we can make a difference in people's lives. And how did you end up at Vanderbilt? So I ended up at Vanderbilt. Well, I, was in, I went from the National Institute of Health to University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I was junior faculty studying sleep and epilepsy. I did both. I saw patients with sleep problems, patients with epilepsy, and then I wrote grants in the interface of the two. And what happened was the, um, my mentor at um, University of Michigan, his name is Bob McDonald. He became the chair of neurology at Vanderbilt in Nashville. And he said, um, do you want to come down and start our, or revamp our sleep program? We want to expand the sleep program. And of course, my impression of Nashville at the time was being from New York originally, right? Was, um, oh, isn't that where Elvis is, right? <laughs> so turns out Elvis is in Memphis, but um, it was a very unusual thing. I, I really didn't ever think I would find myself in Tennessee and here I am 17 years later, and we're still here. And helping so many people with all the great research you're doing. So you're in Nashville, so naturally you have to do something with music. Tell us what you're doing in music. <laughs> well, I love to sing, and I found a group 
called Sweet Adelines. It's, it's actually Metro Nashville Chorus and we're a chapter of Sweet Adelines International. So I sing barbershop acapella music with about 50 other women and we compete, we go to um, different conferences. We, we, we've done really well, like we've won our region a few times and we've gone on and been in the top 10 in an international competition. I also sing in a quartet of four of us. You know, there's different parts similar to the men's barbershop. Uh, I have to say it's been really frustrating with COVID because right now we're rehearsing on Zoom, which is kind of interesting because of the risks, you know, of transmitting COVID. But our hope is that, you know, as the vaccines come out and more and more of us are vaccinated, we can um, go back to rehearsals soon. What is the biggest single thing you can share with our audience that you'd like them to really know and remember about autism and sleep? Wow, that's, that's a great question. I think what I would say was you really wanna take a holistic approach. So when I started getting involved, I would read all these papers on that were kind of esoteric really, like really, you know, there's this problem with rapid eye movement sleep or there's this neurochemical that's not quite right in the brain but there's so many different facets. So for example, kids with autism watch screens just like any other kid. And in some way, some instances, they do even more work, you know, they do even more time with their video games and, you know, they just love their video games. Um, that is a problem with sleep, right? Because you get bright light from the video games. You, it can be very stimulating content. So as a result, you don't sleep. So you could have the best neurochemicals in the world in your brain. You could have medication on board to help you sleep. But if you don't address that video game issue and that screen time, you're not gonna get anywhere. So that's something I always tell people is you have to look at the whole child. You have to look at whether they're having GI issues, whether you know, they're having constipation or whatever, and that's keeping them awake. You have to look at whether they could be having sleep apnea. You have to be looking at whether they're depressed. You have to be looking at what meds they're taking, right, for their depression or their ADHD, which could also inter interrupt sleep. So you don't want to just focus on one thing like a neurotransmitter and REM sleep or, you know, you really want to look at the whole child uh, and um, when you do that, you actually find there are a lot of opportunities to improve sleep that you wouldn't necessarily think about. You don't want to assume, you know, the child has autism, they're not going to sleep. Kids with autism don't sleep. Instead, you want to say, you know, what else could be going on with this kid that I can improve and help the parents with? See, at different brains, we're focused on tools that help. And what we find, we, we find is we're, we're not academics per se, not, but in general, the things that are good for you for one neurodiversity are good for you in another neurodiversity. I consider insomnia a neurodiversity because I think those of us who really have trouble sleeping, our brains are wired a little bit differently. 
okay, whatever we want to call it. And, um, and so if you go to the standard things that are good for our hearts and good for diabetes and good for our brains, well, exercise, a good diet, you know, um, the most underrated thing I think is socialization, having strong social relationships and everything. And when you add all these, I'll call them for lack of a better term, habits, they really don't cost much, but you have to you have to put them in there. And then you add to it some of the things as you know so well, specific to sleep, like, uh, you know, cut down on your screen time and so forth and get ready for sleep. Um, does the research bear that out, that, that these things are all corollaries to each other? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've done, we've done research, others as well have done research showing that when you do these things, it matters, it makes a difference, it improves sleep. We've even put actigraphy watches on kids which is similar to like a Fitbit, but it's more research reliable. And we've shown that it takes them a shorter amount of time to fall asleep when you do these things, you know, these good habits, whether it's minimizing caffeine during the day and, and getting involved in exercise, getting exposed to bright light, turning off the screens at night, all of that really matters. What I've found to be the challenge, and I guess the next frontier in the work that I like to do is getting families who are busy, stressed, whatever, to actually do those things. Like how do we get that information into the hands of families? Because they may not necessarily have a doctor who can do that for them or understands to do that for them. They may be in a rural area, right? So we've written books for parents on how to help their kids sleep. We've, through Autism Speaks, we've published all these toolkits and they're available free online. All of this with the intent of trying to get the material into the hands of the families, but it's still challenging because they've got a lot on their plate. So to me, that's the next frontier. We know what we need to do and it works, now we just need to get the families to do it and, and figure out you know, how we can support them. And part of part of that puzzle, if you will, is the changing technology and social media. Now, sometimes when I go over to my friend Joey's restaurant, Cafe Seville, there's, there's always a bunch of uh, college football coaches and, and professional NFL coaches there and stuff. They go, oh, here comes Hacky. He's going to talk about neurodiversity. Oh, no. And I say, well, wait a minute. Let me ask you this. What were your team meetings like 20, 25 years ago? Well, I used to watch a whole game film and you'd see there and you'd discuss it and it'd be like three hours. What are they now? All we show is little like social media clips length from the games. We break every 15 minutes so everybody can text on their phone. And the whole meeting is an hour, 90 minutes at the outside. And then we make all these clips available for them to look on their phone and everything. And I said, yeah, their brains are now wired differently. Okay. That's what's going on. And neurodiversity itself, I believe anyway, is it's increasing. 
whether it's neurotoxicants, environmental. But look, if I was a, uh, you know, a teenager, a college kid today, if I don't rewire my brain to have some ADHD, I'm going to be a social outcast. I'm going to be talking on the phone and texting and reading your papers and figuring things out and worried about how to calm down before I go to sleep. And it's, it's, it's hard. What are you seeing in your world as regarding the incidence of people with neurodiversity problems and sleep problems? Are sleep problems increasing? Yeah, that's a really good question. I I don't know for sure. You know, as a researcher, I, I really don't want to say something that I, I haven't seen proven because I, I think neurodiversity and sleep is just beginning to come into its own. But I do feel that if you look at sleep problems in our general population, they are increasing, right? I look at two different things. I look at the stress that causes insomnia or the screens, as you mentioned, that makes it harder to fall asleep or stay asleep. That's what insomnia is. And then I look at the obesity epidemic, which can contribute to sleep apnea, which is a blockage in your airway at night. And you have to overcome that by waking yourself up to breathe, right? Um, so those two things to me, in the general population, we know insomnia and apnea are increasing. Whether that's happening in our neurodiversity population, I think it probably is just by inference because they're subject to the same stresses. We know that weight issues are a problem in our in, a, in the um, diversity population, neurodiversity population. So I would imagine they also are struggling with greater instances of sleep problems over time. I just don't know that for sure. And I think it's, it's, it's a really hard time right now because you want to be careful and say like the, the fact I made a few minutes ago that we don't know for sure that people with, who are neurodiverse are sleeping worse than they used to because we never studied their sleep five, 10, 15, 20 years ago. So it's all new. But I also think it's important as researchers and scientists to get our points across in a way that help, right? That help the field. So, you know, to be able to say, this is what we, we don't know, but this is what we do know. We do know that people who are, you know, have neurodiversity, there's so many different stresses on them. And we know that stress affects the brain and affects our ability to sleep. And I think stressing what we do know to the public and learning how to talk to the public in a way that people will listen, not just our patients, but policymakers, being compelling is so, so important. And it's, it's somewhat of a lost art, right? In terms of what we teach our, our medical students and our our faculty, you know, we never have enough time. So we're down there in the in the trenches and we really need to be out there talking to the public. How can people find out more about your work? The simplest thing is, is probably you could either go to your search engine, whether it be Google or Internet Explorer or whatever, and just put in Beth Mallow and see what comes up. Although you're going to get other stuff too. You're going to get a whole lot of political stuff, but we won't go there today. Um, <laughs> what, what you could also do is if you've heard of PubMed, it's P-U-B-M-E-D. It's through the um, National Library of Medicine. 
and it's free. And you can go to this, this site called PubMed and put my Mallow BA in. My middle initial is Anne A. And that makes it a simpler search. Although I've been blessed not to have like Smith as my last name, right? So most people can find my things. If you just put in Mallow and then BA, you'll, you'll get a whole list of my publications. Uh, you'll also, um, and many of them are now free. You can just download them. I also wrote a book that's available on Amazon on solving sleep problems in uh, children with autism, a guide for frazzled families. I read that with my friend, Terry Katz in Colorado. And you can um, look at that as well. That's on Amazon. We really wanted it to be self-teaching. So we wanted a parent to be able to pick up the book with no prior knowledge of sleep and with no one really there to coach them and do it themselves. Is there anything we have not covered that you would like to emphasize today? I think I would just, I'd like to focus, I know you you work throughout the lifespan, right? So, you know, I, I think we're all aware that individuals on the autism spectrum are growing up and there's a lot of adults now on the autism spectrum or if they prefer to be called autistic, whatever, you know, we want to use. And I just think it's super important if they're going to meet, if if they if they're going to meet their goals, and so many of them have so much to contribute to our society. I mean, big time, um, whether it's in financial or sports or you know whatever their restricted interest tends to be, it's so important that they be sleeping and the rest of mental health, physical health, all of that needs to be optimized so that they can be the best that they can be and contribute in a positive way to our society. So I think that's something that really resonates with me is making sure that we pay attention to the physical health and mental health of individuals uh, with neurodiverse conditions. Throughout the lifespan. Throughout the lifespan, yes. exactly. Which is why exactly. we feel, I feel anyway, that society has inadvertently discriminated against adults. Yeah. Because it's all about the cute little kids. Well, the cute little kids grow up. And so we, we start our internships and mentorships here at 18 and above. For right. all of our neurodiverse individuals. No, I think that's great. I so I'm an adult neurologist, but what happened is when my kids were born and were diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum, I got more involved in pediatrics. And then also there's very few people doing pediatric sleep. So that's how I got involved in autism and sleep and kids. But now it's pretty exciting because my kids are college age and there's more and more adults, um, not just with autism, but with um, intellectual disabilities, whatever. And now I'm seeing that my adult neurology skills are coming back full circle. And I, I can, you know, I have that, that credibility and that experience. How cool so I'm is happy that? to be able to give that back. I think the other point I was going to make before we go is sleep affects everything. Right, so not just individuals who are neurodiverse who have or have disabilities, but I mean, you and I know, your audience knows 
how we feel when we don't sleep, right? We're more apt to send that nasty tweet or a post on Facebook and regret it or send that email. And the brain, you know, getting back to research, there have been brain studies that show that the parts of the brain that keep our emotions in control, that there's a weakened connection when we're sleep deprived. So we're not able to keep our emotions in check. It's been proven scientifically. So if you can improve sleep, you can improve so many things, mental health, depression, anxiety, ADHD, and then also your heart, your lungs, your brain, you know, all of these different organ systems are affected when we don't sleep well. So it's a huge opportunity to make a difference in somebody's health as well as their well-being when we're sleeping better. Well, that's a great soundbite. Would you just said it all there? Now for another one, would you care to rattle off, off the top of your head and put you on the spot, Professor Beth Mellows, top 10 hits for tools to get good sleep? Doesn't I will try. Yeah. Okay, let's go. It's like a lightning round. We're going to start. I'm holistic, so we're going to start at the beginning of the day. We're not just going to limit it to nighttime. So I would say the first thing is try to wake up the same time or within an hour, hour and a half of your, you want the same starting time every day. So let's say it's 7 a.m. On weekends, don't sleep till noon, like maybe 8, 8.30, but don't sleep past that. You want to your body makes its own brain chemicals like melatonin and you wanna teach it when it's supposed to be awake and when it's supposed to be asleep so that it doesn't get confused. And that way you'll, you'll get the most consistency. So my first tip is pick a, pick, a, pick a wake time. Tip number two is get exposed to bright light, open the windows, get outside for a walk or exercise. Bright light in the morning synchronizes your biological clock. It's huge. Um, it's really important in waking you up and actually helping you go to sleep at night on time. And then get lots of exercise during the day. Limit caffeine to the morning if you can, because caffeine can stay in your system and interfere with sleep at night. Um, you want to make sure that uh, your stress level is manageable during the day. You want to be involved and engaged, but not so stressed that you can't fall asleep at night because you're thinking about what you have to do the next day or what you just did. During the day, um, as you get closer to the evening, you want to dim the lights, wind down, uh, turn off those screens or at least dim them. You want to have some soothing bedtime routine that interrupts the day from the night, or I should say separates the day from the night. For me, it's taking a warm bath. So I take, I turn all the screens off, I do the warm bath, and then I'll read, but I won't go back on any screens. Um, and then make sure that you're, you've got You've got um, a cool or, you know, whatever the temperature needs to be for you. You don't want it to be too warm. I, I do things like rinse out my nose at night with sinus rinse and I use these breathe right strips because I'll get congested in the middle of the night and that will wake me up. 
I'll have a pen by my a pen and a, a pen light by my uh, bed so that if I think of something, I don't have to turn on the light and wake up. I can just write it down. Otherwise, I'm sitting in bed trying to remember stuff for the morning. Um, I think I hit 10 in there. You hit more than 10. That was wonderful. <laughs> that, was, that was worth the price of admission right there. Right there. You are so funny. Oh, well, I'm telling you, you're terrific. This is great. I've learned so much today, and I hope our audience had. And uh, this is going to be especially inspirational to so many of our terrific neurodistinct interns who are seeking career paths and things, plus help them in their everyday life. It's great. You're helping so many people. I'm so glad I met you, and I'm so glad Dr. Steve Perlman, my hero, and Rick Rader have introduced us. So it's wonderful. What's the biggest thing about sleep that most of us don't realize? So the biggest thing about sleep that people don't realize is that it affects every part of your functioning. It affects your heart. It affects your lungs. It affects your brain. It affects how you feel, whether you're going to be able to be calm and your interactions with others, or whether you're going to fly off the handle, uh, whether you're going to be able to get through the day and feel good about everything you're doing. Sleep affects everything we do, our health and our well-being. Well, Professor Beth Mallow, Vanderbilt, Nashville, Tennessee, the world's expert on sleep and autism. Thank you so much for being with us here at Exploring Different Brains. Thank you, it's just been an absolute pleasure. Exploring Different Brains is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org.